You're listening to What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Here's your hosts, Tommy and Derek. Thank you so much, Christy, for getting us ready for one of my all-time favorite chats. I recently sat down with my new office mate, Dr. Midori Ogasawara, to chat about the differences between Japanese and American meter reporting on surveillance and whistleblowing. This episode is packed with content, and I cannot wait to begin. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Midori is not only an extremely accomplished and highly, highly gifted academic, she's also a very well-respected journalist from Japan. Midori worked as a permanent staff writer at Japan's leading national newspaper from 1994 to 2004. And one of her most significant contributions was her large-scale investigation of Japan's first digitized and centralized national ID systems, YukiNet. Did I pronounce that right, Midori? I guess you'll let me know later though, right? Midori has also reported extensively on sex slavery by Japan's army during the Second World War, and has also reported quite a bit on U.S. military bases in Okinawa. In May of 2016, and this is my favorite bit, Midori interviewed NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. She also happened to be the first Japanese journalist to have ever done so. Midori translated my supervisor David Lyons' surveillance studies book into Japanese back in 2011, paving the way for Japanese scholarship to take great interest in our little field we call surveillance studies. Midori has won nine major academic awards, including the extremely prestigious and very, very cool Banting Postdoctoral Fellowship. She's currently one of only 70 award holders from this latest round. And the best part for me is that she is my new office mate. As you will notice, she is also a wonderful human being. Our chat compares and contrasts U.S. and Japanese reporting on surveillance. As you'll hear from Midori, Japanese media interest in surveillance is actually quite new, much of which is owed to, of course, Midori's excellent work. And, of course, her interview of Snowden in 2016 as well. We do get to talk about this quite a bit, and I'm really, really looking forward to sharing that with you. As some of you might recall, Snowden was in Japan from 2009 to 2011. So Midori asked him, what were you doing there? He was there as a quote-unquote Dell employee. (gasps) He was actually there as a contractor installing software to block other countries from that part of the world from monitoring U.S. government activities online. The most interesting bit of our chat by far is not what Snowden said during her interview with him. It's what she didn't learn from the guy. As you're gonna find out, Midori is very, very well-versed and very well-read. Midori is the expert on not just Japanese surveillance, but the history of Japanese surveillance, which apparently has existed well before Snowden came along. If you can read Japanese, you should check out both of Midori's books, the second of which was very recently published, both works, Explore Snowden and the Historical Legacy of Surveillance in Japan. 
During the interview, I'm going to ask Midori what she finds confusing, like all other interviews, but in particular about media mindsets and attitudes. What Midori finds confusing is how intolerant, judgmental, and highly dismissive American media attitudes are towards whistleblowing. Midori argues that this isn't simply because of the USA's unusual culture of heroism. You know, Snowden is not a hero. Assange is definitely not a hero. Midori tells us that declaring who is and is not a hero is actually a governance tactic. This has been something I've reflected on a little bit over the years, particularly when George Bush Jr. famously said, Laura and I are honored to join you in dedicating this memorial to the heroes of Flight 93. We eventually switched gears into talking about whistleblowing culture in Japan. Now, I thought that the liberal democratic emphasis upon individuality made it kind of obvious about why the strategy of heroism was an actual thing. The US hates whistleblowers. Somehow that doesn't surprise us, right? But still, whistleblowing in Japan, for very different reasons, is also very unpopular. Midori is going to tell us a fascinating story about a Japanese reporter who was targeted by the Japanese government for having a relationship with a whistleblower who once tried to expose a secret agreement between the US and Japan. We finish off with Midori giving us some advice about how to respond to whistleblowing. When it comes to government surveillance, is what we learn important enough to trump? National security? I'm playing devil's advocate, of course. I don't think any revelation about surveillance has made any nation unsafe. There's no evidence of that. And Midori agrees. Rather, it's surveillance that perpetuates insecurity itself. Our chat today begins one day after Midori did an interview with Japanese media about Snowden. They were curious about why the US is so cold about whistleblowing. She talks about Julian Assange with them, and Midori gives us three reasons why she believes this is happening to the south of us. Her explanation leads into an important review of Chelsea Manning's US military revelations from 2010, specifically when Reuters staff investigated how their own reporters were killed in Baghdad. We also get some insight into helicopter pilot conversations at the time, which really sets up for a great chat about whistleblowing culture. The Japanese media, they were curious why the, the American media was so cold to Assange and, and sometimes even Snowden. And um, um, so I, I pointed kind of, I think, three things. You know, one is uh, uh, people tend to get more interested in the personal figures of the whistleblowers or the journalists rather than the issue they brought up to the public. So the, in case of Assange, I think that he is, he's been so hated by any states, like not only the United States, but Australia, you know, uh, the, maybe Japan or any uh, the governments, you know, he, he revealed something wrong. And so, yeah, the Snowden has been um, 
told, you know, as the, the public enemy to the United States, like many people say he's the enemy of the states. But uh, I think Assange uh, has been said, you know, like he's the enemy of any states, like uh, from almost all the governments he he's, he hated and uh, they hated him. So that's uh, like, uh, and then the many media talk about his personalities or his uh, behaviors, you know, what's, uh, he has a cat in, uh, and uh, he's doing uh, something very weird, you know, in the embassy, <laughs> Ecuador embassy. And then, so that gets more attention than what he has brought up to the public. But I uh, trying to bring that um, the focus to the main issue um, in the power dynamics, you know, and then especially I I discuss about the uh, Chelsea Manning's uh, revelation in 2010 because I found it's very important to see what uh, the the United States has been doing in the Middle Eastern area, especially in the context of on, on terror. One of um, her revelation was the uh, the killing um, of the civilians on the street of Baghdad. And then the, about the more than 30 people were killed by the American um, the helicopter. And then uh, one of them who were killed, actually the two of them, uh, the, um, the staff of the Reuters, you know, the global, um, the the uh, the big company uh, the news services uh, and the Reuters is trying to find out why their staff the writer and the, his driver were killed in on the street of Baghdad and then the government was saying you know because they did something suspicious or they were with the uh, people who look suspicious but actually in the film the video the Chelsea Manning reveal was uh, didn't show any suspicious activities just a bunch of people they were walking together uh, on the street but the, uh, the, but then also we got to know the conversation of the two pilots on the helicopter and uh, that's that's what, that was very cruel you know they didn't really see the people on the street as a human beings it's more like um, they called them like a dead bastards and then all you have to do is uh, pick up your weapon then we can fire so they were waiting for the moments to attack on those people. Then they repeatedly attacked on them. So that's why so many civilians were killed. But this type of like uh, facts of the war, normally we don't really see it, right? Normally they don't really show it on TV show. And so that's why I think many people uh, in the United States or in Canada or in, even in Japan, they don't feel their governments are participating in this war. They are doing this. They are part of this war machine. So yeah, um, so that's, that's that's something the government really wanted to hide, and actually they were hiding very successfully already. Interesting. Yeah, in eighteen years. What kind of questions do the Japanese media ask you? And I, I know you've done a lot of media. Is there anything that's really different about the way Japanese media approaches these kinds of international conflicts? Is there anything? Uh, a little bit unusual about the way in which you tend to engage in interviews in North America or, or you hear about or see interviews taking place here? Japanese media, they they basically ask the very similar things, uh, the questions the Canadian media will ask. But uh, about in terms of surveillance, they didn't really have the interests for a long time. Like, uh, 
for example, they reported about Snowden's revelation in 2013, but they didn't take it as their own problem. Like a, it could be the Japanese people's issue. Yeah, they just look at it. Oh, United States, they always have, you know, this type of scandals. And of course, they are doing this kind of things, but they don't really think about uh, it's about the Japanese、um, citizens' emails or chat or, you know,、uh, the video things. I mean, any internet activities. So they didn't report、um, as their own issue. And until I interviewed Snowden in 2016. So I think I got the. Kind of attention、uh, to, in that sense, you know, people started to take it more seriously about, you know, your、uh, communication is、uh, threatened by the NSA worldwide surveillance network. You know a lot more about surveillance in Japan than I do, so that's something I really want to ask you about. But you also interviewed Edward Snowden. Yes. What did Edward teach you about Japan that you didn't already know? And I, I suspect you've learned a lot because your doctoral thesis dealt with colonialism and technology bringing surveillance into Japan, but perhaps even to the extent that the surveillance has already had a longstanding legacy there that people didn't already know about. So, is there, is there, let me, let me go this way with a question if you don't mind. Tell me about what Snowden taught you、mm-hmm. and tell me what you already knew、okay. going in. Okay. I, Didn't know much about the NSA activities in Japan. I mean, no one really paid attention to that. But,、uh, so that's actually exactly the points I wanted to ask Snowden because he was in Japan,、uh, in the,、um, US Yokota Air Base, which is in the suburb of Tokyo,、um, as a, as an NSA contractor from,、uh, 2009 to 2011. I knew only that information. So I just wanted to ask him what he was doing there. And then is there any NSA、uh, branches in Japan? I mean, we didn't know that at all. So I asked him what he was doing. And then he was、uh, actually, he came to Japan as the,、uh, as the worker, uh, private worker、uh, for Dell, the computer company. So, he, but that was kind of, Disguise, you know, he, yeah, he was NSA contractor. So he went to the, uh, the NSA, um, Japanese branch of NSA every day. And then he was,、uh, um, the, making, um, I think kind of the software to block the, um, to block the,、uh, the hacking from other countries to the US system. That's what he said. Uh, so. Yeah, so I think actually that's the moment、uh, the Japanese pink people, including myself,、uh, got to know oh, there is an NSA. They are working. I mean, they are doing something on、physically. the Japanese, yeah, on the, physically on physically the Japanese on the soil. Yeah,、wow. exactly. And then、uh, I went back to the history because.、Uh, You, you like to know, you know, when they came and then what has been done. And actually, there is a lo- much longer history of the US espionage, you know, in Japan. They started right after they occupied Japan after the、um, uh, World War II. And they occupied、uh, Japan until 1952. So, you know, everything, they, they were able to do actually basically anything they like. Under the occupation. And right after they left, they already、uh, had a 
um, good com. I I can't really call it good relationship, but anyway, they have already the connection with the Japanese Self Defense Force to develop uh, the Shijint sites, uh, the signal intelligence um, the sites, and so yeah, Japan itself has uh, um, so far we know at least six uh, the ground station which collect uh, all the um, uh, the, 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 the electronic, um, communications. And then also the, uh, NSA has uh, so many facilities, uh, mainly based in the United, uh, U.S. bases in Japan. This uh, is so interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, apparently the, um, American, uh, military developed many uh, surveillance ground stations throughout the Cold War. So there used to be like a thousands of American staff yeah, who was doing the espionage. Um, but uh, it was it was really like a secret. So no one really knew what they are doing you know they of course they see that some antennas or you know big towers or you know they are doing something uh because there are so many u.s bases in japan but um they didn't think it could be related to their own communications or the japanese government can you have the access to those data the american collected either. So I'm kind of contextualizing the issue of surveillance in the contemporary like everyday life, you know, how it's, uh, why does it, it, it does matter, or how that can um, take um, privacy and, and freedom of um, expression away from your life. You, that's kind of the questions I'm bringing. Fascinating. Um, yeah. As I've gotten to know you, and um, as I've gotten to interact with you, uh, through our seminar series, which I want to congratulate you on, by the way. Oh. Midori has been running the Surveillance Studies Lecture Series for at least this academic year. And prior to that, or is it just this year? Only this year, yeah. And there were many events with many, many wonderful speakers. And I don't think we ever got a, an opportunity to say thank you. Oh, formally. thank you. <laughs> you did a, a, a wonderful, wonderful job. Oh, thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much Tommy. for putting that series together. It was it was tremendously illuminating and it was particularly illuminating for me because as i said i got to know you and i learned a lot about you as a scholar from the way you introduce people and the way you ask questions because there's a genuine sincerity um with a point of leaving openness so that people can ask open questions that aren't directed mm -hmm. and i think that's that's a hallmark of really good scholarship but i i have to ask in the context of your media work is there anything that you find particularly strange or confusing about the way people have been responding to Assange here mm. versus Japan? Is, is, there, is there a noticeable difference between the way media responds to Snowden here versus Japan? What really comes to mind for you as being bizarre? Yeah, um, I felt, uh, yeah, the Japanese, uh, sorry, uh, the American media is very confusing about uh, whistleblowers. Because I think partly because, um, so yeah, the one is uh, the more attention to the uh, the personality of the whistleblowers and an or journalist because that there is a culture of heroism in the American history. Like you know, the becoming hero or being a hero means a lot, m much more uh, in the states rather than in Japan. 
uh, maybe even compared to Canada, I think they have a big culture of heroism. So that's why the media and then also both government, they kept saying, no, Snowden is no hero. No, Assange is no hero. They are not the hero. They are just hacker. You know, that's that's their uh, the framing of the all the whistleblowers. So right after the Snowden's revelation, there is a massive like a cultural campaign by not only by the government, but also by the media, Snowden um, is uh, is a weird person. He's just a geek, or you know, he's doing you know nothing great. He's just a young hacker. He's a narcissist. He needs that. He just wants the public attention. That was massive. So that divided the American um, public opinions. And then, uh, but that's a strategy, actually, what the NSA or the American government does, because then they can uh, deflect attention to the things they revealed, which is about the dirty war, which is about uh, the the uh, taking the privacy from the American public, or not even only the American public, all over the world. But then, of course, American media focus more on the rights of the American citizens. So they were kind of uh, exception uh, for the American government, they have to uh, protect their rights rather than the people outside the U.S. So in that sense, we are in Canada or we in uh, um, in Japan, we have much less respected um, position in terms of the uh, freedom of um, expression, freedom of communication, freedom of press, you know, we could be more easily targeted by the U.S. because they don't really have the legal protection in their own law system. Yeah. Fascinating. So we, we've we <clears throat> we've got a great amount of insight from you already about tendencies in American media. And this focus on heroism is particularly fascinating. I'm thinking back to some of these works I read at the beginning of my PhD, Stuart Croft, The Politics of Fear, the way in which politicians and media discreetly implicitly work together to memorialize things like 9-11 or the crashing of Flight 93, United 93, Mm -hmm. as a point to project this image into the international sphere of America as constituted by everyday Americans who are all capable of being Mm -hmm. heroes. Mm -hmm. Any American can be a hero. Mm. But then ontologically, it's interesting because if you're not an American hero, hero, what are you? a barbarian, part of the horde outside of the gate, so to speak, you have to be a terrorist. How does this narrative unfold in terms of um, how people receive it in Japan? So if you're a Japanese scholar, you're a Japanese citizen, you're hearing these things. Mm. It's being covered by Japanese media Mm -hmm. that Bush Jr. is talking about the world and memorializing certain things in this way. How do people receive this? Okay. Um, yes, I think Japanese media, in terms of the Snowden um, or Assange or surveillance issue, they mostly take up the American media's viewpoint. So, and then I have to say, uh, even about other international issues, most Japanese media uh, get the more information through the American channel. Like even Vietnam War, you know, Vietnam is much closer to the U- uh, to to Japan compared to the U.S. But still, like we learned what is happening in Vietnam through the American media or news services. Um, so. Um, yeah, uh, I think we are. We just take it take it for granted for a long time. But 
In terms of uh, war and peace issue, um, because Japan was defeated in the um, Second World War, people are very reflexive about, and then also being very afraid of um, getting involved in any wars. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, after the war, uh, most people, they lost their family members, you know, their brothers and fathers and sons, they never come back uh, from the, the battlefield. And then uh, they had uh, thousands of, you know, millions of bombs, including the two atomic bombs. So that was, uh, um, I think Japanese have uh, very negative uh, collective memories about the war. So they like to be very careful to become a part of the American war. Now it's all over the world. But uh, at the same time, um, their view, uh, normative view about the war is mainly as the victims, like uh, war victims. Uh, even Japan is the, uh, the country who started the war in the Northeast Asia. Um, so that's a little, from my viewpoint, it's very unbalanced. And then people are still not aware what they have. I mean, America, um, the Japanese soldiers and the Japanese government has done in China, in Korea, and in other Asian countries. So I'm working on this uh, part of the problem in my um, historical work, including my PhD dissertation. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so it, it's, there is a contradictory... Uh, responses to the American media, they take up the worldview the, from the American media, but at the same time, they can be very careful about getting involved further Fascinating. In the yeah, Japanese so war. This yeah. becomes, I, I would think, a very important impediment to galvanizing public opinion about whistleblowing. Can you share with us a little bit more about whistleblowing culture in Japan? Whistleblowing culture in Japan, it's not so good. No, <laughs> I think the United States has a much yeah, a better history in terms of the whistleblowers. Yeah, I think it's related to the individualism. You know, the individualism, oh, okay. we normally criticize about it here, but mm. uh, still like uh, the people has their own faith and then they act on it. And in case of Japanese uh, political culture, um, many people just uh, bring their secrets into uh, their graveyard. Like, we say that there is an expression like uh, people just bring their secrets um, to their grave. Yeah, yours. So All they of don't. My friends growing up couldn't keep a secret to save their <laughs> lives. So that's interesting. <laughs> I think Japanese people should be like that. It's yeah, a white like privilege a <laughs> problem. This is what individuality does. In the <laughs> no, no, no. So not many uh, the Japanese politicians uh, write, you know, their uh, biography or you know the American presidents. They always do that, right? That's included. They including includes their work, but. Um, yeah, um, no, I don't think that in the Japanese culture, of course, they're like an everyday thing, you know, people trying to challenge the power and then also uh, the newspaper reporters or any, you know, individual journalist, they bring the facts to the government against the government and then they trying to reveal more. But um, whistleblower culture is very weak. And then one time there was actually the one fascinating um incident uh, in the 1970s when 
Japan was negotiating、um, with the U.S.、Uh, about the return of Okinawa Islands. So Okinawa Islands is、um, is located in the southwest of the Japanese islands, and, and they were under the U.S. occupation until t- 1972. So they had much longer occupational time, and the Japanese government were trying to get them、uh, get Okinawa back, but in that ne- that negotiation was very secretive. And the media knew nothing about it. So one reporter from Mainichi Shimbun, which is a national newspaper,、uh, revealed a part of the、uh, the secret agreement between the two governments.、Oh. That's actually the Japan paid lots of lots of money、uh, to get the Okinawa back. Actually, it's not the fair treatment, and then they have to uh, make. Uh,、um, Um, that they could clean up the land、uh, that where、um, the U.S. base used to station, and then、um, like a, in the public front, the government was saying, "Oh, you know, there is nothing、uh, unfair thing. You know, the Okinawa used to be part of Japan, so it's just coming back. You know, we don't really pay extra, or we don't really allow the U.S. to leave、um, any." Um, nuclear wep-、uh, weapons, either because Japan Japan has the principle of the no nuclear weapon, but actually there are lots of the secret agreements, and then the his name、um, the Mainichi reporter Nishiyama he reveal the part of the the secret agreements, and then the Japanese law enforcement、uh, started to attack on him. Because、uh, then he they write、uh, how Nishiyama got the piece of、uh, document, diplomatic document、uh, from the um, uh, from the uh, a worker in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and then actually the whistleblower she、uh, provided the piece of the diplomatic. Uh, the cable to Nishiyama.、Uh, she was、uh, in a relationship、uh, with him, like a reporter. But it's totally、uh, the personal thing. But because、uh, Nishiyama and then also the whistleblower, she all, they were both married with other people. So that's why it became the scandal. And、oh. then the law enforcement just strategize. You know, they they thought it's a very A good way to counter the angry public opinion against the secret agreement between the U.S. and Japan. So they,、um, yeah, prosecutor wrote about it in the indictment, and then it got more attention than、uh, the secret agreement itself. So they, the Japanese government, totally succeeded、uh, to deflect the public attention from the the secrecy. Yeah, fascinating. So that's I think I can say these are like a whistleblowing, um, uh, but uh, the result was uh, quite um, yeah, the I mean dark and bitter because eventually Nishiyama needed to leave the mining shimbun. the The company couldn't really protect him at, until the end, and then both of、uh, the whistleblower and then journalist both are、uh, accused in the Japanese court, and then they were the court found they、uh, guilty, and、um, 
Yeah, uh, but I interviewed this Nishiyama reporter for a long time, uh, several years ago, <coughs> and he is very smart and he remembers everything. And now uh, he's uh, writing lots of books about the secret agreements between the U.S. and Japan. And then, um, yeah, so he really survived. Um, I think in the 19th, uh, until, yeah, 70s, right after the revelation, he was so attacked by the Japanese media, by the government, and, and by everybody, basically. But now he's kind of coming back to the, his journalistic uh, the position who, ha- who has the really unique work. Whistleblowing is important for a lot of ethical reasons that are self-evident and obvious. One of the charges against Snowden and against Assange and against Chelsea Manning is that they're not just revealing secretive practices in a corporate office. This has to do with national security. Mm -hmm. And so politicians in the media often say, especially the conservative Mm -hmm. branch, you're putting us at risk. How mm-hmm. how can we as scholars navigate this weird tension? I know a lot of different researchers have different ways of critically dissecting this, but you are the most well-versed in these kinds of issues that I've come across. So I'm really <laughs> I'm really curious about how you think as a professional about this tension mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. a whistleblower like Snowden or Assange mm-hmm. or Chelsea Manning versus the declaration that they're making people less safe. Mm-hmm. How do we deal with that as mm-hmm. scholars? What's your advice for us? I think we should be we should face the world um, like a situation right now. like uh, are we getting safer compared to the 18 years ago? I don't think so. You know, I don't think the NSA or the secretive, you know, surveillance networks, you know, make our life safer at all. Like um, the world became more, uh, actually unsafe and then uh, very uncertain. And I actually, I uh, talked about it to the Japanese media yesterday, like uh, spying on other countries is a very hostile activities. So once you know, whether Russia or China, or Japan or Germany or France uh, or Brazil, when they got to know NSA was um, has been spying on their political leaders, they got angry, right? Like uh, they really were angry, like Angela Merkel in Germany or Rousseff in Brazil at that time. Uh, when they get to know NSA has been spying on their cell phones, they got really angry. And then the people as well. And so now the Russia and China and any other countries, including Japan, what they are doing is just they want to get more surveillance. Like they like to become an NSA or GCHQ. So that makes our life even more unsafe. <laughs> it's just the, and then spying um, the spying the softwares and then apps. You know, you can buy those in the market, and so even like a sim- same uncertainties are coming uh, embedded in our everyday life because they are the people spying each other too in the, about the love relationship. They are about their ex girlfriends or about their ex spouse. You know, it's crazy, right? So <laughs> I think they are really changing, um, affecting the uh, everyday life. But at the same time, um, they can make the world politics more antagonistic, like hostile to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't think, you know, they ever been successful. Uh, using the surveillance as a tool to make the world safer. 
Fascinating. The idea that surveillance perpetuates insecurity is a very difficult concept to grasp mm -hmm. because the premise of surveillance is to make something safer. Do you suppose that the Japanese government will be moving towards this kind of, uh, you, you referred to this earlier, but yes. I'm wondering more specifically about the extents to which okay. you think this might be realized. Yeah, I am writing about it uh, right now. And because after the interview, my interview with Snowden, a year after, two years after, uh, in my interview, he didn't give me any like a newly disclosed documents or anything. Were yeah. you hoping for some? <laughs> no, no, not really. <laughs> no, no. I said, uh, no, I'm not expecting this, but rather I like to ask you questions. I think that's why he accepted uh, my proposal. Uh, but uh, so year uh, or two years later, uh, the, uh, he through in the Intercept and then also the Japanese Broadcasting NHK, they um, reported on the newly disclosed Snowden's document about Japan for the first time. And that papers, um, not many, but uh, definitely evidenced uh, the Japanese government has been helping NSA for a long time. And now, uh, they, now they are more, uh, becoming part of the world surveillance system because they got access to the XK score. If you know that, um, the app, um, I mean, that's the system, uh, called, um, Spice Google. So it can, XK score can capture all the, uh, public and then also private information online, including our emails and then chats and then um, everything. Um, and then they can search um, like a, from our name or phone number or address, or they can just get the more uh, the personal stuff from there. So yeah, now Japan, um, Japanese uh, counterpart intelligence agency have the access to those American uh, spywares. You're going to generate a lot of followers and a lot of fans <laughs> because of the whole five or six people that listen to our show week to week. But this this is fascinating, fascinating, very, very interesting research. Tell us what's next for you, for your, for your research. So you finished the dissertation, you're working on a couple projects right now, and you're going to be beginning you're going to be beginning a very prestigious postdoc oh. in the fall at the University of Ottawa. Thank you. Tell us what's on the horizon. Okay. Yeah. So I am, um, I, yeah, I'm going to, uh, be, uh, the postdoc fellow after May in, uh, in the, at the University of Ottawa. And then my next project is about the, how, uh, the intelligence agencies and technology companies are collaborating each other to develop this world, uh, surveillance system and then how their expansion expanded collaboration has been pushing uh, the legal uh, limit of, of surveillance. So uh, like my hypothesis is actually they have been doing a lot of illegal surveillance, but afterwards they trying to make them legal. So they are changing the legal criteria. It used, once it used to be illegal, clearly, but now they are trying to blur, make, make the line blur and then uh, change it legal um, at the end of the day. So that's um, what I like to, yeah, research on it. What I would really like to do is make time so that we can revisit and do another podcast and follow up and see what new things we learn as the world continues to spin and do its crazy things. 
There's always something more to talk about, but I'm particularly interested in what you're going to find in your new project. Midori, thank you so very much. Thank you, Tommy. Chatting with me. Sorry, I didn't wonderful. know we were、uh, our conversation was already recorded in the first thirty minutes. Anybody <laughs> I've ever had on the show has no idea when I hit record, <laughs> so I just go home and I edit this, and it's, so it's all fine. So no worries. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tommy. <laughs> Thanks for tuning into another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch with Derek and Tommy on Twitter at WTNCast. Stay tuned for biweekly episodes, and until next time, keep listening to the noise.